chapters 15 and 16 describe those judgments in yet another way through a scene in which seven angels come with seven bowls that pour out, so they say in verse 1, the seven last plagues because with them God's wrath is completed. The seven bowls poured out by the seven angels are like the seven trumpets with one huge difference. The seven trumpets poured out judgment on, do you remember this? A third of the earth. A fraction of the earth. But these plagues come upon the whole earth. Everyone receives it. And after they receive, it says in chapter 16, verses 9 to 11, they refuse to repent. They cursed God. They refused to repent and glorify Him. They cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They refused to repent of what they had done. This is the judgment of God upon unbelievers as they retain their hostility toward God. Now, if I could just make a little comment here. Sometimes people have the idea that, that suffering hardship can bring hope and can bring people back to God. That's absolutely true. But there's no guarantee that hardship brings people to God. In fact, remember the trumpets we said that people hit? Remember we talked about AIDS last week? We talked about the flood and so forth? Are those harbingers of God's judgment? They are. Is cancer a warning of death to get ready to meet God? It is. Not that God sends cancer, but every evil, every death. You know, Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, Did the Tower of Siloam fall on the worst 18 people in Jerusalem, remember this? They ask him, uh, what about those 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Jesus says, do you think they were any worse than the rest? No. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Every time there's an accident, every time there's a sudden death, every time a flood, every time a plague, it reminds us the day of our death and the day of our reckoning is coming. And some people hear it and respond. They take warning when they see evils and suffering. When they see even... This, you know, probably there's some adult converts I could ask for a raising of hands. I'm sure I'd get some. In this room, who repented when they saw the consequences of sin in their own lives. How many of you here are adult converts? Adult, I mean, you're out of high school when you became a Christian. How many of you were partly led to come to the Lord because you saw the effects of sin in your own life? You look around, you see the hands going up. Okay. So... The depredations wrought by sin can become a blessed warning. On the other hand, other people suffer these things and they just get angry at God. They say, there can't be a God to have allowed this to happen to me. I hate Him. I want nothing to do with Him. Suffering in itself is not a blessing. Suffering when perspective, when spiritual insight is added to it, can lead to a blessing. And so the unbeliever fails to respond to the word of God. 15 and 16 take us to the judgment day again. Chapter 17 backtracks. We heard in chapter 14, verse 8, about judgment on Babylon. But you know, the funny thing is, we haven't even met Babylon yet. Really. We have its downfall before we have its rise. So what is Babylon? I already gave you one hint. Babylon is... 
the city of Babel, and it's the Babylonians in antiquity who had that insatiable desire and that great pride. But Babylon also is something else in the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a figure with many forms, you might say. Chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls said to me, Come, I want to show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth, that's that phrase again, those who dwell on the earth. That is, those who just look at the earth and live for the earth. The inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And, and so he was carried away to have a vision of this, of this woman who was seated, verse 3 says, on a scarlet beast. Now that sounds kind of like the beasts again. And in fact, it is like the beasts. The woman is seated on the beast who has blasphemous names. We heard that before in chapter 13. And there we are again. Sea beast described, chapter 13, verse 1. Seven heads and ten horns. So Babylon is in allegiance with the sea beast. That is to say, political power. The woman is dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering gold, precious stones and pearls. And, hey guys, she's holding up a golden cup in her hand. And she's looking at you. She's winking at you guys. But don't wink back because her cup is filled with abominable things, the filth of her adult, uh, adulteries on her head. Mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and abominations of the earth. And you look at the woman, she's a little bit tipsy. She's been drinking something out of this goblet she has in her hand. I wonder what it is. You can see she's so drunk, it's drooling down her chin a little bit. It's red. Maybe she's been drinking too much wine. No. Verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Now, this is the fluidity of the metaphor. We actually have two things, two ways in which Babylon is depicted. It's, Babylon is kind of like the sea beast or like the mark of the beast. And it says, come, let's have pleasure. Let's have adultery. Let's have gold and silver. Have pleasure with me, Babylon says to the inhabitants of the earth. But Babylon is also a murderer. Also slaughters the saints. Babylon is both the velvet glove and the iron fist. 17 and 18, however, are going to stress, and it's probably because Babylon represents Rome. Uh, Babylon this is, has seven heads, it says in verse 9, that are the seven hills. Now, what's the city on seven hills? Rome. So she's on seven hills. The heads are seven hills. The beast comes out of the abyss and goes to destruction. The beast is also an eighth king. The scarlet beast is Rome, a city built on seven hills. It had a series of eight kings that had power relatively briefly around this time, waging war against the church. So that's one part. It's Babylon. But the main emphasis of Babylon is that this is the great city, the rich city. Babylon and her riches. Where do we get this? When we get this in really chapter 18, when we hear about the fall of Babylon, the fall of Babylon is explained in 18 verses 2 and 3. It is the, he is, it is the haunt of demons. It's a demonic place. And because of their adultery and their luxury and their drunkenness, 
The word has come out of her, O my people, so that you do not participate with her in her sins. Her sins are piled high. It's like, it's like, it's like too many pieces of wood in a wheelbarrow or too many bricks in your arms and too many books in your arms. You're starting to lose track. You're piled high. And they begin to wobble back and forth. You know it's going to crash. So the sins of Babylon are stacked so high that you know they're going to fall. Now there's the sin of adultery and demonism and boasting of her independence and torturing the saints and drinking their blood. But there's also the sin of commerce. You see this in the next section. The kings and the merchants of the earth. Let me help you find the verse here. The kings... And the merchants of the earth. I just kind of covered 18, 1 to 8. Now in verse 9. Who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury will weep and mourn over her. And they will do it. I love the imagery. They will do it far off and cry. You ever see a fire? You ever see a house on fire? There's two kinds of people at that fire. There's the one kind of person... Who owned the house. And they try to get in the house and pull things out. And they, they just, they're weeping and they, they stand as, kind of as close, closer than they should to the fire. And then there are other people, they kind of stand away to give the mourning family a little room. And they're kind of saying, what a shame. But they don't really care. They just have to be driving by and there's a fire. The kings of the earth do not really care about Babylon. They, they mourn over Babylon's fall. But they mourn the way you would mourn over the death of a corporation to whom you sold your product at a good price. They mourn the way you might mourn over, oh, death of a hated but effective leader of a corporation. You mourn because you're sorry for what you're losing yourself. That's what they say. They mourn, verse 11, because you can't buy anymore with them. You can't buy and trade and make money from trading their cargoes of, and now this is important, their cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet cloth, wood, ivory, bronze, marble, various spices, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wheat, fine flour, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and the bodies and the souls of men. And there it is. That's the clue to Babylon. It's not that she trades. There's nothing wrong with trading. Back to your question, Rob. Nothing wrong with trading. The problem with Babylon is they'll trade anything. They'll trade anything in which there's a profit. And if there's a profit in cinnamon, they'll sell cinnamon. And if there's a profit in wood or gold or pearls or wheat, fine. And if there's a profit to be made in the bodies of men... In slave trading, they'll do that. And if there's a profit to be made in the souls of men, they'll do that. The problem is not with commerce. The problem is with saying, I'm going to make a dollar. I'm going to make a buck. I'll trade anything I need. Talk to one person once who said, what's your job? What's your business? My business is making money. My business is, is buying businesses. I don't make anything. I get rich. That's the problem. That's Babylon. A city, a great city, consumed by her pride and by her self-indulgence. And so the city falls. 
And people only lament at a distance, at a distance. Some people wonder about the response to the fall of Babylon. They think maybe it's not worthy of Christians. When Babylon falls, chapter 19 says, the multitude in heaven shouts, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, just and true are his judgments. He's avenged in her the blood of his saints. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Is that unworthy of a Christian? talked about it last week a little, didn't we? We don't gloat at the fall of Babylon. We don't take delight in the death of the wicked. God himself says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But there is a day when people are sealed in their iniquity. And when they're sealed, when they are identified with their sins, when they've negated the last chance to repent, and the day of the dawning eternity in the new heavens and new earth has come, then we say at last, thank you. They're done. The power of sin, the power of Satan is finally over. No more torture, no more oppression. The downfall of God's adversaries has indeed come. Chapter 21, verse 8. The cowardly, about the new heavens and new earth, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderer, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic, idolaters, and liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Not those who tell lies, but liars. Everybody here has probably told a lie at some point in their life. But it's one thing to tell a lie, and it's another thing to be a liar. Everybody in this room has probably thought a murderous thought, but it's another thing to be a murderer. When you and your sin are one, then you cannot be admitted into heaven. And there should be joy when the power of evil to harm, to pervert, is finally gone. There's one thing I want to talk about just briefly. It is the numbers, the timing of the book of Revelation. Uh, the, the reference to time, times, and half a time. I made the quick comment that that was the whole gospel age. What I'd like to do is just explain that to you very briefly to get, so you get a feel for the way in which Revelation does some of its symbols. You could say broadly, I, I don't, you can just listen to this. I don't know if you need to take notes on this, depending on your mentality. This kind of explains a few things. The symbols of Revelation work three different ways. Some symbols, there's virtually no change in meaning from our original usage earlier in the Bible to the book of Revelation, like the seal in Ezekiel 9, the seal in Revelation 9. It's just it's the same thing. There's no change at all. Others, there's a little bit of a change. Like the one who rules with a rod of iron is a prophecy of an unnamed Messiah in Psalm 2. But then we find out for sure that it's Jesus in Revelation. Okay, it's just a, a small shift. Then there are others where there's really a pretty big shift. For example, the two witnesses, which we talked about briefly last week from Revelation chapter 11, that's taken from Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, the two witnesses are Zerubbabel and Joshua, who is, Zerubbabel was a governor, and Joshua was the high priest at the time of the restoration. And those two witnesses were prophesying the word of God's love and restoration in that generation. 
And then Revelation takes and changes that a lot and says, those are all witnesses to me. Not just two concrete ones, but... And the imagery is all drawn over, and it goes from two concrete historical men to everybody who preaches the truth. Or the word on Babylon in the Old Testament, which we just studied, which is about the fall of literal Babylon, a city called Babylon, that was a warrior city and a, and a wealthy city, is applied to Rome and to all who dwell on the earth for luxury and all who live to be intoxicated by adulteries and drunk and oppressive and so on. See how it's really a pretty large-scale broadening, and that's what usually happens with Old Testament imagery. It gets, it gets bigger in its scope or bigger in its reference. Some of this comes from Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. You remember in Daniel chapter 2 uh, that it says, at the, end of the, at the end of Daniel 2 is a vision, it says that there will be four kingdoms, and the first of the four is Babylon, and the last of the four is Rome. And what happens is they're sort of brought together, the first and the last. In Daniel 7 it says that the fourth empire ends with a proud king who wages war on the saints. Daniel was probably thinking of Antiochus Epiphanes. Revelation says that is broadened out. Now in Daniel 7 it says that the proud king who wages war on the saints will do so and will prevail for time, times, and half a time. A time is a year, times is two years, half a time, three and a half years. Daniel 7 specifies the numbers, he actually gives the numbers, 1,290 and 1,335 days, which is a little bit more than three and a half years. And in fact, Antiochus Epiphanes, when we read about earlier today, did actually have his heyday of oppression for a little over three years. And then, that, then the Jews began to fight against the guerrilla warfare, the Maccabean War. If the fourth empire is Rome, right, and that's the real fulfillment that's being made of Daniel chapter 7. And Rome, per, Rome persecutes for time, times, and half a time. It says that in 13.5. Chapter 13, verse 5. The beast from the sea persecutes for time, times, and half a time. That time, times, and half a time is the same length as the span of the work of the two witnesses, which is also time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years, 1,260 days. And it's also the same period as, the, as that of the safety of the church. The church is protected for 42 months, 1,260 days. That's in Revelation 12, verse 6, and Revelation 12, 14. It's also the period, 11.2 says, when the holy city is trodden underfoot. Well, now, the, the source of the image of the holy city being trod underfoot is, 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 sorry, is Luke 11, sorry, I'll get it right this time. Luke 21, verse 24, which Jesus calls the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles is the whole gospel age. Therefore, time, times, and half a time is the whole gospel age. Was that complicated enough for you? But I really think it's true. I really think it's true. I, I said it to you. I just, you know, I say things and I run over them really fast. 
I was actually doing some reading this week that gave me a chance to put some of that together for you. So I thought I would. So, just, so you realize I don't just make this stuff up as, as I go along. And I'm actually getting it from somewhere, right? The other thing is, I'm also telling you this because in some of these same passages, there are other time periods mentioned. Another thing I've said before, and I'm going to say it again in just a few minutes, is that I do believe that there is a, uh, one of my favorite words, a recrudescence of evil, uh, a renewed outpouring of evil, like a you know, disease breaking out again. At the end of time, it's relatively short. Final outbreak of evil preceding the return of Christ. And one of the reasons why I say that is, oh, and I left it in my office. There are a couple places, like in chapter 11, it says the witnesses will go for time, times, and half a time. But then they'll be dead, they'll be killed, and those who kill them will, will gloat over their bodies for three and a half days. So the period of their witness is three and a half years. The period of celebration over the downfall is three and a half days. Another place it says... That, that I, and I, I, sorry, I left it in my office. Um, I was down. I, I know where it is. It's on the top of my trash can. But it doesn't do us any good. Um, that, that, that there will be persecution of the saints for one day. And there's a brief allusion to a final outbreak of evil in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. So the gospel age is one of persecution and witness. That's the characteristic of our age. Back to the idea. These things we're reading in Revelation are about the first century. They're about the end of time, but they're also about all times. Because the whole gospel age, time, times, and half a time, is a time of testimony by witnesses, persecution by Satan, chapter 13, verse 5, and protection of the church, chapter 12, verses 16 to 14. They're all going on at once. Witness, persecution, and protection. All three.